Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to our weekly Parsha Shir. For those who would like to join us live, we are Thursday morning, 11 o'clock a.m. Los Angeles time, on a weekly basis with Hashem's help. This week's Parsha is Parshas Vayechi, which means that this week's Shabbos is Shabbos Chazak, where we conclude the first Sefer Chumash Bereshith and Shabbat Chazak, Chazak Venis Chazak, and Almighty God, she bless us all with tremendous strength. I love this story. It was repeated to us many times when we were young men in yeshiva. Um, and it brings out a particular point. I believe, I, I believe I've shared it before, but it's one of those stories worth repeating. Legend has it that when the steam train first came out, uh, word began to spread far and wide that there was this concept called a train. And, uh, you know, this was whatever it was, 150, 200 years ago. And people were really having a hard time wrapping their heads around what exactly is this steam train? What, what does it mean? You know, kind of like how we feel today about AI, artificial intelligence. People are like, what is that? So people were asking, you know, what is this steam train thing and how does it work, etc. So the way it was described was that it was a wagon that can travel without horses. Or in Yiddish, a wagon unfaired, a wagon without a horse. And people were really surprised by this, a wagon without a horse. What does that even mean? Who's schlepping the wagon? Doesn't make any sense anyways. But the rumors kept persisting and persisting. And in one particular town, um, one day word spread through the fantastic form of communication they had then um, called the mikveh. Word spread in the mikveh that in, a, in, the, in the main city, not too far from where they were, there had actually been tracks laid on the ground for the train to come through. And in fact, it was rumored that in a couple of months, the people of the city would be able to gather together and actually see this wagon without a horse drive through the main city. Anyways, you know how it is. They go through all the stages of denial and anger and struggle and, and all the rest of it. But the rumors just keep persisting and persisting until there's a date. They're told, in the big city, thousands of people are going to gather together around these tracks that have been laid and a steam train is going to roll by. And the people of this particular shtetl are mesmerized by this. This is like crazy. How do you do that? Anyways, they get together, they have a citywide meeting and the Chachamim and the Navoinim, they sit around and they decide, we have to send an emissary to go and see what all these rumors are about. <laughs> Find out what's actually happening and come back and report. Let's sort this thing out once and for all. Let's find out if it's true or not. You know, in Kola de Leiposik, this never-ending rumor. Anyways, they choose one particular farmer and they buy him a new pair of shoes and they buy him a new shirt and they buy him a ticket to the main city. And he sets out and he travels by horse and wagon, of course to get there to this place in the city where the tracks are laid at the right time. Sure enough, at the appointed day, they're all told that 11 o'clock in the morning, the steam train is going to roll by and thousands of people gather, including this Yidl, who's come from the Dorf, who's come from the, from the townlet, you know, where people are, 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 uh, are living a primitive life. And he's got to report back to them. And everybody stands around, and sure enough, at the appointed time, or you know, around the appointed time, the steam train rolls through the town. And it's 
puffing smoke and the bells are ringing and all the people of the town are cheering. Whoa! They're so excited, the steam train. And relatively quickly, it rolls by. And within a couple of minutes, the people disperse and the Yidl is standing there, you know, <laughs> pulling on his beard. What do you know? Go figure. It turns out it's true. There's actually such a thing as a wagon that travels without horses. Nope. It's time for him to go back to his darful. It's time for him to go back to his little town and report back to all his fellow Jews who will be waiting for him eagerly to hear what it is that happened and what he saw. So he gets back to his own horse and wagon and he travels back in a whole way back. He's thinking to himself, man, oh man, I got a problem. What am I going to do? Am I going to tell them, am I going to lie? Am I going to tell them that it's not true? There's no such thing as a steam train. There's no such thing as a wagon without a horse. That would be a lie. Can't do that, right? But that would be a rebellion of my own shlichus. How can I be sent on this mission and come back and, and falsify it? Can't do that. Got to tell the truth. On the other hand, if I come back and tell them the truth, that it's true. I stood there together with thousands of people. We all saw the steam train the, the, go by. They're all going to ask me, how does it work? How? How is it possible for a wagon to, drive, to travel without a horse? I don't know what to say because I saw it, but I don't understand it. I'm not one drop more educated than I was before. I know that it exists, but I don't understand how it exists. All the way back, he's wondering to himself, back and forth, tell the truth, lie, tell the truth, lie. Anyways, as he's pulling into the town, the story goes, a bolt of lightning, genius strikes him. He knows what to do. He gathers all the people together and he tells them, Hevra, I figured it out. I figured it out. He said there was a train and it rolled by and there was smoke and there were bells and there were whistles and it shouted and it screamed and all the people were standing around and cheering. Do the people said and? And as I was standing there, says this Yidl, says this Shliach, this emissary, looking at this, I'm thinking to myself, this doesn't make any sense what's going on. And as I watched it roll by, Wow. I figured it out. He said, you know what they you know what they did? Quote, the Muzogan says this Yid, says this Jew who went to the big city to watch the steam train and report to all of his chaverim. He says, Mimuzogan as a claim of is behalten in the Quote, we must say that there's a little horse hidden somewhere inside the train. We must say that. Wagons don't travel without horses. Ah, this one did. He says, you know what it is? You know what this invention is? They figured out a way to take a small horse and hide it on the inside so you cannot see it from the outside. And that's how it goes. And with this, with this, the matter was resolved. Of course, it wasn't the truth, but it was a palatable way that he could digest what it is that he had seen and explain it to his peers without feeling like a fool. This story was repeated to us and, and explained to us because it highlights that human beings find it very difficult or even impossible to actually truly liberate themselves from their way of thinking, from their mindset, from how it is when you're stuck in a particular way of seeing things, when in your mind it's clear that a wagon cannot travel without a horse, even if you actually see a steam train, even if you see the wagon traveling without the horse, your mind fills in the gaps 
and you figure out and you consider yourself very intelligent for doing so, that there's a little horse hidden inside. Okay. And with that, let's go into the Parsha Shir. Parsha Svayachi concludes Yaakov Avinu's life um, and actually concludes Yosef HaTzadik's life. It concludes the entire Chumash Bereshis. And with this, the story of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, Yosef and the brothers really comes to an end. Next week in Parsha Shmois, the Torah launches us, takes us straight into the story of Mitzrayim um, and the Jewish servitude in Mitzrayim, which will eventually take us to Yetzirah Mitzrayim and, and all, that, all that will lead from there. The, the Parsha focuses primarily on Yaakov's final days, Yaakov's final hours with his family. All right. In three places in the Parsha, the Torah makes specific reference to Yaakov Avinu's bed, Amito, the bed that Yaakov was on, the bed that Yaakov actually passes on, is made reference to three times in the Parsha, twice in the beginning and once in the end. The first place is in Posak Lamed Aleph. If you have a Chumash in front of you, this is coming from Yosef, Yaakov Avinu's conversation with Yosef. He makes Yosef swear, the Torah says, that Yosef will take him, Yaakov, out of Mitzrayim and bury him in Eretz Yisrael, in the Moras of Machpelot, etc. Um, why Yaakov made Yosef swear is a separate shear, not for today. But the Pesach says, here, we'll start from Pesach Lamed, Yaakov is talking to his son Yosef. He says, he's going to pass on, I will lie down with my father. My father is in Mitzrayim. I want you to take me, carry me out of Mitzrayim, says Yaakov to Yosef, take me out of Mitzrayim after my passing. Ukvartani and bury me in their burial place, referring to the Moras of Machpelah. and Yosef commits and says, that's the simple meaning. Yosef says, I will do exactly as you said. Yaakov says to Yosef, swear to me. And Yosef swears to him, quote, Yisrael al Hamita. Number one, the first place. Yisrael, referring to Yaakov, bows down at the head of the bed, or toward the head of the bed. On these words, that, that Yaakov bows down on the head of the bed, Rashi gives two explanations. The first one is, says Rashi, the Shekhinah, Hashem's presence, always rests above the head of a person who is ill, may Hashem protect us. And so, Yaakov bow, is bowing down to the Shekhinah. <coughs> the Pesach refers to it as Yaakov bowing down at the head of the bed because Hashem's presence is always to be found at the head of a person who is ill. That is important because many of us have the opportunity to visit people who are ill and one should always be conscious and aware that Hashem's presence is to be found. All right. Another explanation, says Rashi. Al-Roshamita. Ya ya Yaakov bows down to the head of the bed. It wasn't, says Rashi, according to the second explanation, that he was bowing down to the Shekhinah that was specifically at the head of his bed, but he was bowing down to the Shekhinah, referred to as Rosh Hamito. The Shekhinah is referred to as the head of the bed. Why? Says Rashi, He was bowing down to Hashem, thanking Hashem for the fact that his bed was complete. And there were no evil ones among his children. 
right? The Medrash elaborates even more. Yaakov said, my, grand, my grandfather Avram had a son Yishmol, my father Yitzchak had a son Esav, and me says Yaakov, all my sons are tzaddikim, referred to as mitosa shleima, his bed from where the children come from is complete. All his children are tzaddikim. Not one Russia among his children. Concludes Rashi. Why now? Why is he bowing down to Hashem now? Shaharei Yosef, thanking Hashem for all his children, his children are, Yaakov is 147 years old at this point, right? That means that his children are in their 60s. Some of them. Shaharei Yosef Melechoya, says Rashi, because Yosef was a king. And he was taken captive among the, among the nations of the world. And still, Yaakov can see that Yosef has retained his tzitkas, his holiness, despite being a king and despite being taken captive among the Goyim. Yaakov says, Yaakov Avinu bows down to Hashem. In this case, according to Rashi, Al Roshamito means that he's thanking Al Roshamito, means he's, he's but he's bowing down to Hashem in appreciation for Al Rosh for the head of the bed, meaning for the fact that all of his children are tzaddik. Okay. Continue reading. The Torah says, a little while later, after these things, Yaakov actually becomes ill. And it's reported to Yosef that Yaakov is ill. The Torah says, Yaakov. Uh, uh, Yosef, excuse me, takes his two sons, Esmenasher and Ephraim, who are, who are at this stage around 19 or 20 years old. Menashe and Ephraim, Vayagid Yaakov, and Yaakov is informed, Yosef, your son has come to visit you, quote, by Yitzchazek Yisroel, again, referred to as Yisroel, Yaakov strengthens himself, by Yeshev, and he sits, Al Hamit, on the bed. Second place where Yaakov's bed is mentioned. In this case, Yaakov is what we would call basically on his deathbed. But he hears that Yosef is coming together with his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. He strengthens himself. He's, he's on his last legs. He strengthens himself and he sits. And he sits on his bed. All right. Now, you know me. There's got to be a Balaturim here somewhere. Here comes the Balaturim. There's the Balaturim on the second. The, again, the first one is Al Roish Hamito, and the second one is Al Hamito. Says the Balaturim, Al Hamito on the bed, Beis B'Mesoira. Oh, now listen to this, my dear friends. Now listen to this. Says the Balaturim, the words Al Hamito appear twice. The phrase, excuse me, not the words, the phrase Al Hamito on the bed appear twice in all of Tanakh. Anybody remember? Where's the second Al-Hamita? Beis B'Mesoira. Vayeshev Al-Hamita, number one. Yaakov Avinu, when Yosef comes to visit him with his two sons, Menashe and Ephraim, he sits Al-Hamita. And the second place? V'homon Noifel Al-Hamita. And Homon fell on the bed. As usual, of course, he gives us no context. He gives us no explanation. Just the quote. Says the Balaturim, the words Al-Hamito twice in the entire Torah. Once by Yaakov before his passing, by Yishazik Yisrael, by Yeshev Al-Hamito. And the other one, V'homo Noifel Al-Hamito. What's the connection? 
שהצדיקים, אפילו כשהם חלושים, מסחזקים. צדיקים, says the Balaturim, even when they are weak, even when they are low, even when they are at a time of vulnerability, מסחזקים, they are strengthened. שנאמר, ויסחזק ישרור, וישב על המיטה. Yaakov is in the last moments of his life. There's seemingly, there's no weaker moment than that. And yet, even here, the Torah says, that Yaakov gathers his strength. So tzadikim afilu kishahein chaloshim, even when they're weak and vulnerable, mischaskim, they're strengthened. Contrast that with v'horashoim, evil people. Afilu b'toikfon, even when they are powerful, they fall. Shenemar, as the Bosak says, Vahoman Neifel, quote, and Homan falls on the bed. All right. In typical classic Balaturim style, no more explanation. Twice Alamito, Vayishazik Sol Vayeshav Alamito, Vahoman Neifel Alamito, Tadikim Afiluk Shen Haloshim, Tadikim, even when they are weak, and Mishazkim, they're strengthened. And Rishoyim, even B'toikfon, even in their peak, even in the zenith of their strength, they fall, as it says, Okay. Three important points. Number one. The Pasuk V'homon Neufel Al Hamita, of course, we all know this, Homon falls on the bed, is taken from Megillah Sester, where the Torah is in the middle of describing what happens at the second feast. In other words, Esther invites Homon and Achashverosh to two feasts. At the first feast, she refuses to tell Achashverosh what she really wants. <coughs> At the second feast, she tells Achashverosh exactly what it is that she really wants. What does she want? She wants to save herself and she wants to save her people. She tells, Esther tells Achashverosh, me, and my nation have been sold for annihilation. Achashverosh at the second feast, when Esther told him that her life is in danger, Achashverosh has no idea what Esther's talking about. Not a clue. Because he doesn't know until that point that Esther's Jewish. He knows that the Jews have been sentenced to annihilation, but he doesn't know that his own wife is Jewish. So he looks at Esther at the second feast and he says to her, what are you talking about? Me who is that who? Who? Who wants to annihilate you and your family? And Esther said those famous words, Ish tsar She accuses, um, not accuses, she, she, she identifies Homon as being the one who wants to annihilate Esther and her entire family. Okay. So the wool is kind of pulled off Achashverosh's face, right? He, he, he's, he's being exposed here to a conspiracy. Not the conspiracy that, that he was expecting, but a conspiracy nonetheless. Because Haman does know that Esther is Jewish. Um, Haman knows exactly what he's doing. Achashverosh was being worked here. The Gemara says Achashverosh wasn't particularly intelligent, at least according to some opinions. Achashverosh is being worked here, and in one moment, 
Esther rips open the conspiracy and tells him exactly what's going on. She tells him that Haman has every intention of annihilating Esther and the entire Jewish nation with her because she, together with Mordechai and, and, and all the Jews. Okay. When this happens to Achashverosh, how does Achashverosh react? Achashverosh is still the king, right? All eyes turn to Achashverosh. All right, what is he going to do? What is he going to say? Everybody's watching him now, right? The faith of the Jewish people is, their very existence seems to be literally hanging here in the balance. So the Torah says that in classic style of the once upon a time monarchs, Achashverosh stood up and went for a walk. <laughs> he went to take a walk with the, with the balance, with, with the faith of the Jewish existence hanging in the balance. The king in his fury stands up and takes a walk in the garden. All right. Some interesting things happened in the garden. But be it as it may, while he is out, Homon falls at Esther's feet to beg for mercy. When the king comes back, he sees Haman, quote, Neufel al Hamita, falling on the bed that Esther is on. And the king, Achashverosh, says those famous words, quote, Hagam imi babois, are you trying to conquer? Which is, according to many opinions, the conquering here is a euphemism for intimacy. Are you trying to conquer the queen, imi babois, in my house? And that is the last real conversation that takes place. After that, Haman is sentenced to death and he is taken to the gallows actually by Mordechai and he's, and he's executed. That's, that, that's the end of it. But again, the expression the Torah uses is Neufel al Hamito, that Haman is falling on the bed. All right. So the Balaturim is saying, look at this. Haman at this point, at, at, the, at this, during this feast, Homon is in a tremendous position of strength. He is the viceroy. He is more intelligent than Achashverosh, so he's manipulating Achashverosh. He's invited to a party only with the king, the queen, and him. And all the people of the land, including the Jews, are bowing down to them. He has covered, in the words of the Megillah, he has kvoid Ashroi, he has covered an Oshir, he has honor and wealth. He has a large family, Roiv Bonov, right? According to the Gemara, he had 208, 208 sons of Roiv Bonov. And um, life seemingly couldn't go any better for Haman. In fact, he even had plans in the works to execute Achashverosh and to make himself the king. And things seemed to be going pretty well for him. And yet, in a moment, in a moment that Haman himself seemingly catches Haman himself seemingly completely off guard, Boom, he goes from being at the zenith, at the peak of his career, honorable, wealthy, the whole world is bowing down to him, 127 countries. Even the Jews are bowing down to Rahman al-Islam. In a moment, he's hanging from the gallows and he's finished. And, the post, and this critical moment is described, that this ha happens 
when Haman is when Haman is falling on the bed that Esther is on, falling on the bed again. The simple understanding of it is that Haman is pleading for mercy. Achashverosh thinks that Haman is, or assumes, or is concerned that Haman has other intentions. Says the Balaturim, the same Alamita kicks in here when it comes to uh, when it comes to Yaakov. Again, we have Alamita, but this time it's the other way around. This time you have a tzaddik, and a tzaddik is at the lowest point, at least of his physical life. He's literally got just a couple of breaths left, and then he's gonna he's gonna pass on. By the time the parsha is over, he's 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 in Shemayim. And yet, by Yischazik Yisrael, Yisrael Yaakov, you know, manages to strengthen himself and 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 gather strength even even at this terrible, uh, even at this painful, vulnerable moment. Okay, someone is asking if Haman knew that Esther was a Jew, didn't he suspect anything? Um, all right, it, it's, it's a good question. Um, did he suspect anything? It's hard to know what he suspected, what he didn't suspect. The idea is that, well, we'll soon get into it actually a, a little bit more, but the idea is that Haman thinks that because of his position and because of his position in government and all the rest of it, he believes that he is, that he is secure. Okay. What's difficult to understand about this Baal Haturim is like this. When it comes to, in other words, Baal Haturim is drawing a contrast, right? Yaakov Avinu is at the lowest point, and he strengthens. Haman is in the highest point, and, and the same Al Hamito appears, and, and, and Haman collapses. Okay. What's difficult to understand here is like this. When the Baal Haturim sees this as an icon of Russia, Going from the highest point to the lowest point, this is actually, this is actually fairly simple to understand. I mean, talk about going from riches to rags in an instant. Haman goes from being the the really the most powerful person in the world, or the second most powerful in the person in the world, manipulating the most powerful person in the world, to hanging in the gallows in a matter of moments. That's clear. But the idea that he sees this on, on, on the other hand as a moment. Where Yaakov Avinu, at his vulnerable, at his most vulnerable, lowest of moments, weakest of moments, experiences a surge of strength. This is difficult to understand. It's true. The Torah says by Yisrael that Yaakov strengthened himself, and according to some interpretations, he was even able to physically stand up. But then But then he sits back down on the bed. He gathers his children together. He tells them it's over. He blesses them. And he is no more. So where does the Balaturim see here some kind of icon, some kind of, you know, example, dogma, that in the most vulnerable moments of the tzaddik, he experiences tremendous chinuk. All that happened was that he was able to sit, to sit up on his bed. And again, according to one opinion in the Medrash, he stood up for a second and then sat back down on his bed. That's it remaining old, remaining frail, and remaining really within the last few moments of his life. That's difficult to understand. Another thing that's a little difficult to understand that needs to be thought into here is, the Balaturim is obviously pulling, he's, he's culling on the words Al-Hamito. He's finding these two words, Al-Hamito here and Al-Hamito over there. Okay, granted. That doesn't really have anything to do with the bed. Right? All right. In, in, in Esther's case, again, it's easy to understand. The bed helps, right? Because the bed helps Achashverosh move to a level of fury that is, that is so intense that he just sends Haman to the gallows and he doesn't ever want to see him again. 
right? The commentaries say the, the verse concludes with the words of Pnei Haman Chafu, that uh, the, the, the face of Haman, one of the ways of translating Chafu means we're covered, which means that, that the guards actually, the guards actually physically covered Haman's face because once a person is sentenced to death, the minag they write in the, in the old Persian days was that they would cover their face. When the, when the king was angry with somebody, they the Barbanel says they would cover his face because they didn't even the king didn't even want to see him. The bed helped in that in the case of, of Homer, the bed is significant because the bed plays into helps Ahashverish rise to a sufficient level of fury. He thinks that Homer is trying to is, is trying to uh, uh, is, is trying to rape Esther. But in Yaakov Avinu's case. What's the significance of the bed? He's sitting on a bed because he's got no strength. The fact that he's still on the bed shows that he's, he needs to be, you know, within, within arm's reach of the bed because of how frail he is. So what really is the connection here to Al-Hamita to the bed? And then, of course, we need to understand of all the places in the Torah, the Torah to show us that Sadiqim, even in their lowest moments, rise to the greatest of heights. And Rishoyim, even in their highest of moments, descend to the lowest depths. We put the pull Dafkar from Yaakov and Homon. I mean, what's, why is this connected specifically to Yaakov and Homon? Okay. So, perhaps, perhaps, this is connected, or, or the idea here is, is, can be connected to a very, very, to a very famous, um, and yet I wonder how many people actually think into, a very puzzling passage of Gemara. Back to the story of, of, of Megillah's Esther, the Gemara is talking about the moment between Haman parading Mordechai around on a horse, and the, sec and the second feast. Basically, again, without, without getting carried away here, the two feasts of Esther, Haman and Achashverosh are one night apart. So it was, let's say, uh, you know, a Sunday night and a Monday night, for example. In between the two feasts, on the Monday, for example, Haman is forced to parade Mordechai around in the streets on the horse and shout, so shall be done to a man that the king wants to... Uh, uh, the king wants to honor. When he finishes parading Mordechai around the streets of Shushan, he goes home, the Torah says. That's the Torah's expression. He goes home. Oval means in mourning. Means, means with shame on his head. All right, the Gemara says because his daughter... Uh, threw the pail of garbage over his head, and then her daughter, when her daughter realized what she had done, she jumped off. So he was awful because he lost his daughter, because he had the garbage over his head. All right. The Torah says that when Haman came home between the, the parading Mordechai around the streets on a horse and the second feast, he called an emergency meeting. Zeresh Ishtai, his wife Zeresh, may her name be blotted out. The Chachamim, some of his friends, they all came to this meeting. And they tell them like this. They told Zeresh's wife tells him. She tells him like this. She tells him. He tells him what just happened. They tell him like this. They say, tell him a quote. Im Mizera Hayuhudim Mordechai. 
if this Mordechai that you've started up with is Mizera HaYehudim, the simple meaning of it is, if he is a Jewish descendant, Asher you've now begun to fall before him, begun to fall before him because Haman had to parade him around the city on a horse. They said, if this guy, Mordechai, that you started up with, if he is Mizera HaYehudim, if he, the simple meaning of Mizera if he's a descendant of the Jews, and, and, and the tide has turned ever so slightly, you've had to parade him around the city, you're not going to be able to overcome him, you will fall before him until there's nothing left of him. This is what they tell him. They basically tell him, if the guy you messed with is a Jew, now that the tide has turned ever so slightly, you're done. Finish. Zog Kaddish. You're toast. Nothing will be left of you. Which is actually a strange thing for them to say. Because again, he's still Viceroy. He's still the most powerful person. Everybody's still bowing down to him. But they tell him, if the tide has turned, it's over. All right, there's, there's so much commentary on this. But I want to focus on one part. The Gemara asks a simple question. What do you mean, if Mordechai is a descendant of the Jews? Mordechai didn't know that, uh, Haman didn't know that Mordechai is a descendant of the Jews. That's the whole story. The whole story is that Mordechai is a Jew. And, 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 and Haman, in his fury against Mordechai, decides to annihilate all the Jews because they're all on Mordechai. So what do you mean, if he's a Jew and not what? And not Korean? Says the Gemara, Zeresh Ishtoi, his wife Zeresh, the Machshefa, the Soina Yisrael, the anti-Semites, Oyavav, his friends, his family, the people who are on his side. They told him, my dear Haman, one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to prevail or you're going to disappear in a, huff, in a puff of smoke. And it depends on one thing. I'm going to read the words of the Gemara because they're so shocking. The Gemara says to him, Omrulei, they said to him, they said to Haman, if this man Mordechai that you're fighting with, if he comes from any one of the other tribes, you'll be able to overcome him. You will destroy him. You'll come out on top. But if Mordechai comes from Shevet Yehuda, or Shevet Binyamin, the Ephraim and Menashe, or Ephraim and Menashe, Lo Yochlasle, you will not be able to overcome him. Listen to these words. Listen to this. They tell him, Oh, you want to know if you're going to succeed or fail? It depends which Shevet, Mordechai, and by extension Esther, who both who, who are both relatives, both come from the same Shevet, both come from the same, same Shevet. It depends which Shevet Mordechai and Esther come from. If he comes, if they come from any other Shevet, we're talking about Mordechai, if they come from any other Shevet, Ruvain, Shimon. Levi, Yisachar, Zvulman, Naftali, God, sure you're fine. But if it's Shevet Yehuda, or Binyamin, or Ephraim and Menashe, which is basically Shevet Yosef, uh, Yosef's two sons, Yehuda, Binyamin, and Yosef, you're finished. Everybody else, you win. It depends. Now, what's the truth? Which Shevet, which Shevet did Mordechai and Esther actually come from? So th there's discussion about this in the Gemara because the Torah refers to Mordechai as both Ish Yehudi and Ish Yemini. Ish Yehudi can mean a Yid, a Jew, 
right? Like in, in, in the Megillah, all Jewish people are called Yehudim. Ishudi can mean a Jew. Ishudi can also mean from Shevet Yehuda. But the Megillah also refers to him as Ishimini, which means he comes from Shevet Benyamin. So the Gemara says the Jews were arguing, right? The Jews among themselves were arguing. Is he from Shevet Yehuda or from, she or, or from Shevet Benyamin? In the beginning of the story, they were arguing because nobody wanted, everybody wanted to say he's not from our Shevet because the Jews were upset with him for angering Haman. They said, it's your fault. If he hadn't angered Haman, he would have left us alone. At the end of the story, when, 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 when Mordechai saves everybody, then it's flipped. So everybody, they were all arguing because they said they wanted him to be part of their shevet, right? Who was it that said, disaster is an orphan, failure is an orphan, success is a bastard. Failure is an orphan, nobody wants to take responsibility for it. Success is a bastard, everybody says, I fathered it. Everybody wants to say, thanks to me. So in the beginning, when Mordechai was perceived as a troublemaker, all the shvatim said, no, he's not from us. Yehuda said he's from Shevet Binyamin. Binyamin said he's from Shevet Yehuda. Once it was over, everybody said he is from us. All right, but what's the truth? The truth is he was from Shevet Binyamin on his father's side. On his mother's side from Shevet Yehuda. And so this a descendant of Shaul Amalek, right? Who was from Shevet Binyamin. And so the people of Haman's family tell him <clears throat> it's going to go one way or the other. And it depends which Shevet he comes from. Yehuda Yosef or Benyamin, you're finished. Everyone else, you'll be able to overpower. You'll be able to overcome Mordechai Atzav. This is what they tell him. All right. If the Gemara records it, it means there is significance to it. It means they weren't just talking. They weren't, you know, it means there's, there's something to this. And in the end, the fact that Haman is, is overpowered by Mordechai, and Esther, and they managed to destroy him, is credited to the fact that Mordechai, and by extension Esther, come from either Shevet Yehuda, Binyamin, or Yosef, and his two sons, Menashe, Menashe and Ephraim. Okay. What is the common denominator between Yehuda, Yosef, and Binyamin? What do these three tribes have uniquely that, that all the other tribes don't have. Um, again, I, I looked in the commentaries, di different explanations are, are given, but I think the most obvious, the most straightforward explanation is that these three tribes, Yehuda, Yosef and Binyamin, these are the three tribes of Malchus, right? Yehud, these are the three tribes of royalty. Kings are associated with these, with these three tribes. Yehuda, of course, David HaMelech, Shloim HaMelech, all the kings from Dovid Amalek till the coming of Mashiach, including Mashiach, all come from all come from Shevet Yehuda. As Yaakov himself blessed Yehuda in this week's parsha. Well, Yosef Shevet me Yehuda. Binyamin also has a part in royalty. Why? As I just mentioned, because Shaul Amalek, who was actually the first king, even before Dovid Amalek, comes from Shevet Binyamin. And the only other one we find takes the position of king is Yosef. Who is the king? Yosef Yosef is the ruler of, of, of all the land. Yosef is the one to whom the entire family bows, including Yaakov Avinu. I believe the one common denominator between the three of them is royalty. We don't find this in any other shevet. Yosef himself, Binyamin had a descendant called and Yehuda has a descendant called David and Shloim and, and, and all the other kings for all, for all future times. So basically what Haman's family is telling him, they're telling him, look, it depends who you started up with. If you started up with a commoner, any regular youth, you'll be fine. 
But if he started up with the king, you're finished. Because he did start up with the king, because Binyam, uh, because Mordechai and Esther did come from Shevet Binyamin, descendant, they were actually descendants directly of King Shaul, as the Megillah says. And Shevet Yehuda, at least from their mother's side, as the commentaries say. Therefore, therefore Haman uh, dis disappears and, 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 and is destroyed. Okay. Why? Why is Malucha? Why is the, the royalty element so significant? Why is why why is the fact that that it's why is the fact that that Haman had messed with royalty? Why is that so important? Why would that in the end be the downfall, be the very thing that 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 causes Haman's mapola? Right? The fact that he had messed with with uh, with with the royal part of the Jewish people, as opposed to if he had started up with other parts, the, the, the family of Haman tell him, if it's not royalty, you'll succeed. And if it is royalty, you won't succeed. What's the significance of the royal, of the royal, of the royal element here? I believe the pshat is very simple, actually. I think the significance of the royalty element is that it is the job, it is Torah's perspective on a king. It is Torah's perspective on a real royal person. That the royal person has to be completely selfless. They have to see themselves completely as a channel to, to, to bring to the Jewish people the Malchus of Hashem. Right, like this year is, is a year of Hakel, right? In the days of Hakel, the king would read from the Sefer Torah. The king reading from the Sefer Torah would be a sort of reenactment of the giving of the Torah the first time. That's what the Rambam says. The idea being that the king is significant, not in that the king himself is significant, but on the contrary, the idea is that the king is able to be transparent and, and, and remove his own existence, remove his own agenda, remove his own sense of self and just channel the, the, the Malchus of Hashem. We don't believe, right? We don't believe that, that we don't need any intermediaries between us and Hashem. It's unnecessary. So it's the job of the human king to be the selfless person that, 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 that really just is, that is appointed by Hashem to, to, to be there, to, to be a human uh, embodiment, if you will, of somebody who just who just represents Hashem's Hashem's kingdom. That's the Torah's perspective on royalty. And in fact, if the king ever does interject any of his own agenda or all the rest of it, then his royalty fails. Which is why, in Shaul Melech's case, things went wrong because because. He was given an instruction by Hashem to annihilate Amalek. When he struggled with it, he was told that his malchus isn't going to last. It can't last. Many generations later, Mordechai and Esther are given the opportunity to fix spiritually that which Shoal had, 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 had not perfected, that, that which Shoal was missing. Mordechai and Esther fix it in, in, in their day, right? Mordechai actually tells this to Esther. Mordechai tells Esther in the Megillah, she, he says to her, if you don't go to the king, the Jewish people will be saved some other way. 
But remember these words he said to her, he says to her, but va'atu base ovich, you and your father's house will be lost. What does he mean? What he means is he's telling her that Hashem has given you and I, Mordechai and Esther, descendants of King Shoal, an opportunity to fix what Shoal Amalek didn't do. If Shoal had done everything he, would, he, he was supposed to do, there would never be a homon. Now is our opportunity to fix this, to carry out Hashem's directives. Mordechai told Esther, the Jewish people's future is not at stake here. It's our, it's Abu Beisovich, us in our father's house. We're being given the opportunity and the opportunity, an opportunity which they took and concluded whatever it is that they were supposed to do. Royalty, according to Torah, represents not one who is significant in their own right, but quite the contrary. Royalty represents somebody who removes their own ego completely to the point that they can channel and serve Hashem's royalty from working through them. So basically, more than, so basically in, 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 a, in a spiritual sense, if you will, Haman's family are telling him like this, you're fighting with the Jews. If you've found a Jew to fight with that has an ego of their own, if you found a Jew to mess with that has some sort of some sort of existence for himself, then you'll be able to fight with the Jew because if, if you found something in a Jew where the Jew sees themselves as separate from Hashem, then you'll be able to, you'll, you'll be able to overcome that. But if it's Yehuda ben Yomin or Yosef, if it's royalty that you've touched, Jewish royalty, Jewish royalty has nothing of its own, nothing. It's all just a manifestation of Hashem. Then you're finished. Right, the analogy they gave they gave us for this was, again, I think I've also mentioned this in the past, but it, it just brings out the idea so beautifully. The analogy they gave us is is uh, is this: they said a king, a human king, a regular king, has servants for everything, right? Servants who prepare his coffee, servants who who prepare his meals, servants who do his laundry for everything. The last thing the king does at night before he goes to sleep is he removes his crown. And the first thing he does in the morning when he wakes up is he puts his crown back on. He can't sleep in a crown. All day he wears the crown. Not while he's asleep. So where's the crown while he's asleep? The answer is he hangs it on a nail on the wall. For the six, seven, eight hours, whatever it is that the king sleeps, the crown sits on a nail on the wall. So the obvious question is... Why doesn't the king have a servant? Why doesn't the king have an evet to manage his crown while he sleeps? He's got an evet for everything else. There should be one mamuna, there should be one person who's appointed to, 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 to hold the crown while the king put it on a nail on the wall. How is that honorable for the king? What's the answer? The answer is because if an evet, if a servant holds the crown while the king sleeps, at some point during the night, the servant human being will take the crown Try it on their own head. See if it fits, if it doesn't fit. See how it feels. Look at themselves in the mirror from this side, from that side. Ah, it's cooked ice chain, it's cooked ice air chain. The Evid would spend a couple of hours fantasizing that the crown belongs in his own head. By the time the king wakes up in the morning and it's time, it's time to return it, the servant may have a bit of a hard time returning the crown to the king. Ah, I feel like it's... I feel like it's kind of mine a little bit. I look good in it too. 
And what if the servant holding the crown for all those hours starts to wonder, maybe I really am the king. So the king says, oh no. The nail on the wall will hold my crown because no matter how long it sits there, the nail on the wall will never think I'm the king. Never. In Yiddish, the word for nail is a shvok. The word for the top of the nail, the head of the nail, is a cup for that shvok. The crown will sit on the head of the nail in the wall and not on the head of a servant because the nail on the wall will never think it's me. The nail on the wall will always know that the crown isn't theirs. This is an analogy for the way Torah views royalty and leadership in general. As long as you, the leader, can remember that you're a nail in the wall, as long as you can remember that you're but a puzzle piece in Hashem's master plan, and as long as you can remember that it's not about you, Almighty God will place his crown of royalty on your head and you'll be worthy of carrying it. You'll embody a Jewish king and a Jewish leader because you'll be pure and innocent of the ego. The minute you start to think, wait a second, maybe it really is me. Maybe it is something about me. At that moment, Almighty God takes the crown away and says, no, you can't do it. Haman's family, Soyne Yisrael, anti-Semitan, anti-Semites, understood this at some level. They looked at Haman and they said, if you've messed with royalty in the Jewish people, you're finished. There's nothing for you to hold on to. There's no achiza. There's, no, there's, there's nowhere for you to even begin. And from that conversation, he's rushed to the second party in which where he's identified by Esther and he's taken straight to the gallows, finished. And his 10 sons, not too long after them. All right. Let's conclude the Dvar Torah. How does the Dvar Torah conclude? Yosef is also a king. The first one, actually, the first one of them all to be a king is Yosef. And Yosef's kingship, Yosef's leadership, Yosef's royalty started with a dream. He dreamed that everybody is bowing down to him. You remember that story in the beginning of Parshas Vayeshev? He comes to his family, to his brothers, his father. He tells them, I'm dreaming that I'm the leader. His brothers hated him. They were jealous of him. His father rebuked him and said to him, quote, what kind of dream is this? And Yaakov says to Yosef, do you think, are you dreaming? Says, yeah, a father to his son. Could you imagine? 17-year-old kids. The father says to the son, are you dreaming that I'm going to bow down to you? And your mother and your brothers. This is your dream. I'm Yaakov, I'm Yaakov Avinu, the father of the Jewish people. You want me to take this seriously? Yaakov says to Yosef, in your dream, are you really dreaming? Says Yaakov to Yosef, are you really dreaming that I, a father, am bowing down to you, a son? Fast forward. 
Yosef becomes king. Yosef is reunited with his family. Yosef has two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Yaakov Avinu makes it down to Mitzrayim and lives his 17 best, the 17 best years of his life. And makes Yosef swear that he's going to take him out of Mitzrayim after he dies. And Yosef swears and Yaakov bows down. Al-Rosh says Rashi, listen to this. Says Rashi, ya- Yaakov was bowing down to Hashem. His bed was complete. Not one of his sons were a shoyim. Who was he worried about that his sons would turn out for Shoyim? Shimon and Levi wiped out a city? When the father felt that he was endangering their existence? Yehuda, about whom the Torah says, that he approached a woman who he thought was a Zaina, was a woman of ill repute? Who was he worried about? Ruvain, who moves his bed where he's not supposed to? More than anybody, it seems, from Rashi, he was worried about Yosef. And the moment he sees that Yosef remains a tzaddik, Yaakov says, Mazel tov, and he bows down to Hashem because his bed is complete. Shahare, why? Why was he so concerned about Yosef? We talk about the stories that we've read about the brothers. Ruvain, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda. Even tells us that the brothers rejected Yehuda. The brothers borderline excommunicated him. Yehuda was responsible for the one whose idea was to sell Yosef. It turns out the one Yaakov was most worried about was Yosef. Why? Why Yosef? Because Yosef was going to be a king. Yosef dreamed that he was a king. Oviv Shomar HaSadover, despite Yaakov's resistance, Yaakov is watching this. Now listen to the words of Rashi. Dover Acher says, Rashi, Yaakov bowed down His bed was complete, there was no Rosha. Shahare Yosef Melahoya. Because Yosef was a king. In other words, despite the fact that he was a king, and taken captive among, among Goyim, Says Yaakov, look what's going on here. Yosef, the king, the one who is most the most vulnerable position to ego, royalty, and taken captive among Goyim and King Machin Mitzrayim. He remained a tzaddik. How? The ego never got to him. It was never about him. He survived all of that. Yaakov bows down and says, my bed is complete. And he's now ready to bow down to Yosef. He's now ready to bow down to Jewish royalty, to a Jewish king who can carry the crown of Hashem, so to speak, on his head and lead the Jewish people this way. All right. There's one more place in the Parsha. Where the Torah says the word with a, with a, with a, with a bed of Yosef appears. This one is Perak uh, Perak Memtes, chapter forty-nine. Excuse me. Yeah, Perak Memtes, pasuk Lamedim, verse forty-nine, chapter thirty-three, last pasuk 
in Perak Memtes. Vayechal Yaakov Latzavay says, Bonav Yaakov concluded giving his final instructions to his sons. Vayesoyev Raglov, and he gathered his legs, El Hamito, onto his bed. Vayikva Vayosef Alamov, and he's gathered unto his people. I'm going to read Rashi in a second, but first, the Dasakainim. Yosef Raglov Alamito says of Dasakainim, Lefishoitziyon Lachutz, because he had taken his feet out of the bed. When he wanted to, to bless the sons of Yosef, he took his feet out of the bed. When Yaakov finished blessing them, he brought his legs back into the bed. The bed of Yaakov makes its third and final appearance. Says Rashi on this post, the Torah doesn't say that Yaakov died. And the Gemara says in the Tainus, Yaakov of Yaakov never died. What's that supposed to mean, says the Gemara? Yaakov never died? Of course he died. He told them what to do with his body. He told them where to bury it. The Gemara says, so what? You mean they, they preserved his body for nothing? They buried him for nothing? They eulogized him for nothing? What do you mean Yaakov of and the Gemara says those famous words, remember? Quote, Mazaroi Bachayim, Afu Bachayim. Just as Yaakov's children, that mito, that bed, just as that mito, the children live on, Afu Bachayim, so does Yaakov live on. You see, my friends, in the end, in the end, it was all about Yaakov's children. At the end of his life, when it comes time to close his eyes and return his neshama to our Father in heaven, he bows down. He can see that his sons, his children, are all tzaddikim. His bed is complete. And so he doesn't really, spiritually, ever die. Because Zarei Bachayim, because his children are alive and his children's children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren until here we are three and a half thousand years later saying this in the words of the Gemara, it's still that same mito, it's still that same bed in which Yaakov continues to live for all eternity. What's the secret? What is, what is the secret of this eternal life of Yaakov? Yaakov, Yaakov doesn't die. His children are alive, so he's alive. The secret, of course, is that as long as we follow, as long as we remember and live up to this idea that the Torah is talking about over here, the royalty of Yosef, the Malchus of Yosef. Yosef dreamed that everybody was bowing down to him. Yaakov said, I'm not going to bow down to you. But Yosef was a king. And so in the end, everybody, everybody does bow down to him, including Yaakov. Why? Because of who Yosef was? Because Yosef, as a Jewish king, is a tzaddik. It doesn't, it doesn't affect him. He retains the tzidkos, the holiness, the connection to Hashem. He continues to serve like that nail on the wall that carries the crown of the king. Nobody ever mistakes it. For something e egotistical or selfish. 
And that becomes the secret of Jewish existence for all eternity. For as long as we remember that, for as long as we remember that Hashem preserves us and Hashem protects us with Hashem's help, like Yaakov Avinu bowing down in his bed, who merit to have all of our children and all of our disciples be tzaddikim and continue in the ways of our fathers and our grandfathers with Hashem's help for many years to come. Chazak, chazak, and